What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Elevate Experience. The podcast about overcoming struggles and adversity and how that relates to addiction, recovery, and health. I am your host and the CEO of Elevate Addiction Services, Angie Manson. And I'm Dallas Terrell, co-host and life intervention counselor at Elevate. Thank you so much for joining us, and let's jump right in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have a very special guest, Michelle Homicky, and uh, we're excited to share her story with you guys. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. So happy to tell my story. Awesome. So let's talk about it. Let's roll right into where it begins as far as addiction or even prior. Sure. Well, first of all, I grew up in a large family. I grew up in Pennsylvania, six children. And I, I would have to say I had such a wonderful childhood. The thing that happened in my life, though, from a very young age, my father was an alcoholic. So from a very young age, I saw things that made me sad. I saw things I didn't understand as a child. Um, I was very fortunate that I had four other sisters. So when things happened, if my parents fought or something my dad might have done that evening, we were able to talk together and cry together and just try to understand it. Because when you're younger, you just don't understand. Right. You just hear your parents fighting. And again, I, I loved where I grew up. I loved my parents. I loved my upbringing. But the alcoholism was just the kind of the, the sad, the dark side that until I was a lot older, I really didn't understand. Back then, I don't think my mother really talked to us a lot about it. Uh, you know, she would kind of be negative sometimes. Oh, your father and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to leave him. And again, the fighting. And so you just didn't see the whole picture and you didn't understand what that meant, what addiction meant. And, and that's hard for, for kids to grow up in that environment. And, you know, hence, fast forward, I end up uh, working with uh, my husband and I worked for Xerox Corporation. And we were really good friends for a long time. And we actually worked together for 15 years. So that itself is a record, I must say. Yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> it's, tough, it's tough working with your significant other. But, we both know. You know yeah, yeah. So what happened was, I think I never realized really what his addiction was because he was a high-functioning alcoholic. The guy got up every morning at 5 o'clock, went to work. He was an amazing salesperson. He truly was someone that... A lot of people admired, very well loved. But I think as I progressed into the marriage, probably 10 or 12 years into it, I realized that this is a problem. And I think there were some big aha moments for me. I always felt like he wasn't listening to me. I would look at him in his eyes and try to look into his soul and say, honey, don't, you know, we have this beautiful son. He's growing up. Um, I just need you to take care of yourself. He had gone to the doctor and he had some problems with his liver. And the doctor said, you really shouldn't be drinking. Uh, He grew up in a family from New Jersey that owned taverns. So he actually started drinking probably about 12 years old. Wow, that's early. So that's that's early, right? So you can imagine the effect, as you all know, on your liver that that has as you progress. So I always would say to him, do you not want to live and see your this beautiful child, you know, graduate from high school, become a man and and all of this? And he would kind of look at me with this blank stare and I just felt like I never really got to him. Like I really couldn't reach that part of his soul because I think sometimes with the drinking, you're very subdued, almost depressed sometimes. Like I guess I hear it's a depressive because I, I felt a lot of times he was very subdued, right? Um, especially when he did drink. He would come home and I have to tell you from work and maybe have 
two scotches, three scotches, maybe a few beers. So I don't perceive that as an alcoholic. I don't care what anybody says. I, I never really thought he was an alcoholic, to be honest. It's, it's when we started getting deeper into it and the problems in the relationship and just the pain. You know, we would go out somewhere and, you know, obviously he'd drink. And not that he was a falling down person when he drank. drank. He was actually just pretty normal, yeah. but very subdued. And But the point is, he never really got into my heart and soul. It was always the drinking just affected him where it was. It's like he, I felt like he didn't listen to me. So and that affects your relationship as, as you move forward. You know, anytime I ever fought with him, I just felt, and again, maybe it was wrong to talk with him when he was under the influence because sometimes that just uh, exacerbates, right, the situation. And, you know, I, I remember just, again, looking at him and saying, don't you want to live a long life? The doctor told you not to drink anymore. Uh, you have, you know, some issues with your liver. Um, he then contracted hep C, which hep C just, again, um, fast forward the, the problems with the liver. And he just started feeling like not really good. This is the other thing that happened to me. His family perpetuated it. They almost would get mad at me. Like if I was over at his mom's house, they'd be drinking. The mother, the sister, the brother. Honestly, they were all addicts. And I would say, do me a favor. Don't, please don't serve him. You know, yeah. especially if he has a few. And they would almost get mad at me and say, you're, you're ridiculous. You know, why are you treating him like this? So it was turned on me. Like I was the issue. And I got to tell you, that's probably the saddest thing and the shame because I really felt I felt ashamed Yeah. because I felt like it was all me. It was my fault. It was my fault that he couldn't talk to me. It was my fault that raising this beautiful son, you know, we had these issues. It was just there was so much turmoil inside of me. But here's the beauty of Michelle. Whether whether we like it or not, is everything's internalized. Mm. I would never let them see me sweat. I would never let a friend, a neighbor, my family ever see me that, you know, it, it was all great. And I think that really, after a while, that just eats at your heart and soul so bad. Sure. That you're suppressing all kinds of communication and thoughts. And now you're putting exactly. up walls because you can't communicate. Yeah, that's hard on exactly. the psyche. So that, it, it almost became a shame. So I was almost started, I felt like I was hiding. I was hiding when we'd go out to dinner. I would just keep a really good eye on him and just watch him. And like, I just didn't want him to keep drinking. And obviously, I didn't want him driving. So I drove. And, you know, I would have maybe two social drinks. That's the most that I drink. So I think it's more of that. It's the pain and emptiness that I felt because yeah. you feel alone. I didn't want to tell anybody. I didn't want to people to think I was a bad person. I mean, I know this sounds stupid, but this is how you think when you're dealing with this. And I never went and got any help. Um, and shame on me. So I really did enable him. But, you know, in fact, in the magazine that I was stating about Time Magazine, they were saying the difference between enabling and helping him. And I guess I was enabling him mm -hmm. because I let it continue and I really didn't do anything about it. Well, uh, I just want to yeah. stop you there and say, you know, but, I think you tried you know, you went to the people that were closest to him and tried yes. to elicit their help to handle the situation. And when you were shot down, you probably felt very alone. And like what solution and situation as well as am I over overblowing this? Is it me? I could see how it would put you in a spot where you didn't think you had power to actually help him. Yeah. 
And it's, you know, I think it, it just takes its toll. Um, I feel like I aged. I feel like I hit a point probably at like 12 years into a 21 year uh, marriage, 12, 15 years, I was in a downward spiral. Again, it was my fault. Shame on me for not reaching out to someone to try to help. But when you're in this relationship, and by the way, he was an unbelievable father. He was an amazing husband. He, I loved him. And so I think you just kind of, I don't want to say look the other way, but you just accept it. Yeah. And you say, okay, I'm just going to keep trying and I'm going to keep on moving on because he never missed his kid's soccer game. Then we adopted this beautiful girl. Um, she was a day old and he fell in love with her. And again, you know, you're raising these children and it, it really was scary. And I have to tell you when this all bubbled up, this is a perfect example I'm gonna tell you. So all this stuff was going on. Again, great dad, we had a great family. We lived in, you know, Boca Raton. It was a beautiful neighborhood, beautiful families, great education for my children. We were going on a cruise and I was so excited. It was like a week cruise. We're going um, on a Saturday. So it was Friday. So what happened was he decided to stop, and I didn't learn this till after. He decided to stop and get uh, some beer and my daughter in the car. At that time, I think she was maybe five, four. He downed a six pack of beer. You know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, basically you can poison yourself. We all know that, right? Yeah. Um, and he came home and we were, the kids were sitting there eating, or my son and I were sitting there eating. He put my daughter down. He started eating. He couldn't even get his fork to his mouth. I said, Chuck, you know, something has to change. I had talked to some people um, previous to that about doing some type of intervention. It was actually one of my customers, her husband. And he said, if it gets to that point, absolutely. That night, I made the hardest decision of my life. I said, I have to do an intervention. It was tough. Um, I called my friend. I said, I'm going to bring him over. And, you know, I actually had my son, who at the time was 14. I had those tests where you blow into it. And you see how, uh, how much alcohol in the system. The breathalyzers. Um, you know, breathalyzer, yeah. You know, so I asked my 14 year old again, that's that's a horrible thing to do. I asked my 14 year old to, to get it and we did and it was high. And I knew that that was it. I, I looked at my son and said, Charlie, this is it. I said, I know you don't understand, but this is it. And, you know, I had to express that because I didn't want to him to, you know, you're 14. You have a little idea now what's going on. So I brought him to the place under the premise that we're going to the doctor. We went there sat down, laid it on the table. They came in and basically said, okay, this is it, Chuck, you're gonna stay here. Um, explain what it was, it was intervention. And he turned around and looked at me and said, I hate you. And I said, okay, all right, well, I love you and that's why I'm doing this. Yeah. I said, someday you'll understand. Um, he said, no, I won't, no, I won't. I hate you so much and you know, that." Again, I'm trying to do the right thing as a woman, as yeah. a mother. How am I going to do this with my kids, you know? Um, I had to do it. It's, I think that took so much courage. Um, and I'm going to tell you that the other, the other part of this is, so he went, to, uh, he went for about 70 days. He insisted on coming home because he didn't need treatment. I really think he was still drinking there or doing something. P.S. He woke up, we came home. Two days later, 
He woke up, his face was swollen. I called 911, went to the um, hospital, grabbed my son. Friends came over to watch my daughter, went to the hospital. Doctor said, he is in sepsis. He probably has maybe an hour to live. Again, this was one of those times where for me as a woman, a mother, the courage that you have to possess, the strength, because I have my, my 14 year old with me, which maybe I shouldn't have brought him, but I did. And he said, mom, how are we gonna survive this? I said, we're gonna survive, we're gonna survive. But the doctor asked him to leave the room. So- Your son? I, yeah, he asked, he said, Charlie, I please say your goodbyes. I, I don't want you to be here. And you know what, That what a great doctor, because I would never want that last image in his mind. Uh, you know, it was in my mind, but not in his mind. Um, so we did, and, and, uh, and I forgave him, I forgave him. And that was probably the hardest thing I ever did in my life because I know I was raised Catholic. I have a lot of faith and I forgave my father. And I remember I had to do that. So, you know, while he was really taking his last, last breath, I forgave him. And that was probably the hardest thing I had to do in my life because as you all know, uh, it's hard to forgive because you just, you know, so that's kind of it in a nutshell. Again, there's many good stories in between because I love the guy. Yeah. But the bottom line was the pain you felt, the emptiness. It's my fault. Um, these beautiful children, I want them to continue to love their father. Um, but I couldn't have them keep seeing that in their life and not doing anything about it. I talked to enough people to know that you have to take drastic measures sometimes to get results. And that's exactly what I had to do. I have so many questions. And thank you very much for sharing that with, with us and with our listeners. I know that's not easy at all. So did you, so he went to treatment uh, for 60 days? So kind that's of dried right. out? Ended up in 72 days. Now, again, they do the detox. Yep. Uh, they say he's not drinking. You go to classes a few times a day because I actually went there and joined for classes. Gotcha. Um, a few times, which was good. So I kind of got inside the mind of uh, people who suffer from addiction. And it was very, it was probably different than I thought. Um, but I think it's important to listen and get into the mind of these people. Because like you said in the beginning, or when we were talking before, um, these people are beautiful souls. And of course. there's reasons, and right? And it's just, here's what I just read. And I think this was a perfect way to describe it. It said, um, Alcoholism is a human condition, but it has human consequences. That to me in a nutshell is what it is. You're human. These people are human. We're all human, but there's things in their life or there's things that uh, unfortunately, um, I don't understand sometimes why, but who was I to question? I didn't understand when my dad drank either. Of course. Um, so when he got out of treatment, did you notice him immediately drinking? Was it right after that? Or because I'm just curious about, uh, you know, how because uh, we've actually seen that prior too, where somebody's a long term jerk, a drinker, they get sober, they're great. But if they try to go back, it does their body in. I'm just wondering the timeline on that. I think, yeah, I think that I really feel that he was drinking while he was there because. Okay. I, I don't know if that's possible, but I kind of think it is somehow, some way they still get a hold of, of that. And I feel that it just, don't forget his liver was so bad. He had had biopsies. Uh, he had had 
a doctor telling several times, you continue to drink, this is going to destroy your liver again when you start at a very young age. So I don't know, maybe when you try to detox, and I don't know the physical ramifications of all that, but when someone tries to detox, does that put your body into a different position where you're, um, you're forsaking maybe having complications? Because detox is, uh, it's a tough step, right? Yeah. But yeah, he died a few days after he came home. Yeah. So. Well, what we've seen, and, and, you know, I'll liken it to, say, heroin and alcohol. You know, you go in with a certain tolerance, but if you give your body that time to get sober and dry out, you go back out sometimes with the same mental tolerance, but not physical. And if you try to oh, yeah. do the same that you did prior, yeah, it's deadly. We yeah. see that. It's yeah. unfortunately yeah, it's common. Just, it's, I felt when he came home, he had a sponsor, and I guess someone had to come home with him, which was, I thought, a great idea. Yeah. Um, he, I, he looked empty inside. He, when I talked with him, he looked empty. Don't forget, he, he really didn't like me very much at that point. Um, he probably really didn't like me a lot at that point because I was trying to help, but again he didn't see it that way um yeah yeah Um, that's that's the difficult part and i I love what you said earlier where it was you know a human condition with human consequences and it's hard being on the outside trying to figure out how what he's doing makes sense to him you know and that's like the very difficult part for loved ones and families and even even as an addict myself or or someone in addiction try, even to us sometimes we don't know why it makes sense or how it makes sense and that's kind of the journey or the unlearning or like how does how does this make sense why am i doing what i'm doing but the fact of the matter is that to some degree for us it worked for a very long time how it worked why it worked what we were trying to fix what we were trying to solve at some point it was like uh a beautiful strategy to life and that's what and that's what i always try to say like did something happen and and maybe that's a hurtful question to ask someone what happened that you have to do this what are you trying to numb and he would deny always and again you know i'm a generous kind person and i never want to hurt somebody so if he didn't want to talk about something that happened i was not going to uh Keep, I mean, I, I asked a lot and I never really got the answers. And again, right. don't forget when you have the family that's basically in the same position, that just skyrocketed. Oh, and by the way, this was this was a thing that I think and my mother heard this and she almost fainted. I was talking to everything happened at the hospital. Um, I called them and they, they barely made it up there to see him before he died because the mother's like, oh, he's fine. He's fine. I said, no, he's not fine. Yeah. The doctor said he has sepsis. I said, I'm not a doctor, but sepsis is dangerous and he doesn't have a long time to live. So I literally had to talk them into coming. Wow. So they came up there. Yeah. And the, after he died, the sister-in-law called me like two days later, her and the mother. And my mom was home with me and they said, do you know that you killed him? And I said, what do you mean I killed him? And again, this is the family of my husband. I killed him. They said, you should have never put him in intervention. By doing that, they said, you killed him. Wow. And I said, they said, you're going to have to live with that for the rest of your life. My mother was standing right next to me. She started crying. I said, you know what? I, I'm not going to have this conversation with you. My husband isn't even buried yet. Um, I didn't. And I hope someday you'll grow to understand that. And they never did, by the way. 
I separated myself from them and um, the, his mother died. I didn't even know it. Um, I had to find out about it from Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, they cut me, you know, I kind of, we kind of cut the relationship off, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but I didn't like doing that because I'm not got that kind of person at all. But yeah. I think sometimes the way I was treated and the things they said to me. Yeah, it's um, not okay either. How not okay. How could you not be rude, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. Even if they are the grandparents of your children, it's like it's not okay to uh, leave yourself in that kind of toxic relationship. It's, yeah. No. I think you did the right thing for sure. Yeah. yeah. But you and don't see that. You don't, don't see it. You know? Yeah. Everybody deals with things in a different way, and some uh, deal with it like that, and uh, it kind of sucks. It's not okay. Yeah. It's 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 difficult too. Like like Angie kind of just mentioned too, with people dealing with grief or loss or trauma in different ways it's it's like the unbelievable happens right like something happens so so gnarly or drastic that you have to make sense of it in your head somehow but Mm -hmm. the reality is is there's nothing to figure out you know and so whatever you figure out is just kind of like a band-aid for your own emotions or your own feelings that's a great way to describe it. And That's it, it exactly. just presents in the craziest ways, you know? Um, yeah, also like a coping mechanism. If they felt their own guilt and enabling, of course, they're going to lash out and try to take it out on you and say it's your fault because they don't have... It can't be They them. don't have the skills or the ability or emotions to confront and, and think that maybe they had a part of it too. It's much easier to blame somebody else, which is all part of, you know, an addict mentality. You know, there's never self... Uh, accountability. It's always somebody else did this. This is why I'm this way. And so them being in their own similar situation, I'm sure that's why you became their easy scapegoat. Well, I think the thing I learned to just go into the meetings there and it, it was a wonderful facility is I was powerless over it. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with me. Um, it was all him. And but I was powerless over it and I wasn't going to change it, I guess. And they always say this and I hear this a lot is that if they don't want to change and like you just said angie if if they're still in denial then they are never going to reach down and figure it out themselves Um, and that i think that to me is sad for people and i you know i wish that i could have helped them in that way and i wish i could help any friend or anybody in my life that um that suffers it. My dad got sober. He went to AA and he got sober. That's so awesome. And I still, have, I still have a letter he wrote me because a few people in the family turned on him and didn't want anything to do with him. And right. I stood up for him. I said, dad, if you go to AA and let's talk about, let's, let's help you through this. And he did. And I, I was proud of that. That's and he awesome. lived, he, he lived a long life. Yeah, he lived. He just died a few years ago. He was 80, I think 85 or 86. So yeah, I, I'm proud of him. So my point is it can be done. Yeah. And right. And that's the thing. It's like and that's why what what you all do is so important, because, uh, again, you have to dig hard in your soul. And it's so hard for people to do that. I think I've always been a soulful person my whole life. So I'm really fortunate um, because I was raised with parents. I had a lot of faith and spirituality. But if you're not like that, as I said before, you're more surface. And it's really tough to to reach down because you don't want to blame yourself for anything. You don't want to take accountability. Um, and, and that's if, really hard. To do. And if you look it, it's going to hurt, you know, it's like, it's uh, hurt. which like the, 
I think the parallel is like looking to see what's wrong in the short term hurts a lot. In the long term, it saves your life. And yes. with drinking in the short term, it fixes everything. But in the long term, it takes your life. So it's yeah. just kind of these day-to-day -day decisions of avoiding pain, avoiding feeling bad and only trying to feel good. And then every day just trying to figure out how can I feel better than I do right now? And just day-to-day -day making the wrong choice. And it's it's hard to, like you said, it's very hard to watch. It's one of the hardest things to watch is someone slowly throw away their life. It's It doesn't really get much sadder than that. Yeah, and I, I, I worry about just, you know, younger children now. I, I, you know, I was worried about my son, to be honest, because yeah. you always hear, okay, it seems like the male, that male gene could be predominant. Um, but he's a wonderful person. Um, again, maybe seeing it growing up helped him. Yeah, because that too. He absolutely, him and my daughter, my heroes, they actually gave me the strength. And I tell Monica this all the time when we talk about it is they gave me the strength because they kind of saw it in action. My son obviously understood it more being older, but I think he said, I am going to not be like that and hurt myself. I'm going to take good care. Um, he went to medical school. He's a doctor. Wow. I'm so proud of him. Yeah, I'm so proud yeah. of my daughter I getting a that. great education. Um, but to me, they are the heroes in my whole story. Because yeah. they kept saying, Mom, it's going to be okay. It, you know, again, I hit a lot, though, I have to say. You know, for many years, again, I, I was uh, pretty good at being a great actress because you do hide a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want them to see it. So I did that for a long time, hurting myself, obviously. Uh, <clears throat> it did take time for me to finally talk to someone and feel better. And I actually took them to some groups where they could talk. Awesome. And you know what? I think that was so helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I always recommend to my friends or anyone that approaches me because they know my story. And, you know, I was a young widow in my 40s at that point um, is go get help. Talk. It's OK. Because, again, and maybe years ago, my dad, I mean, you're talking many years ago. You didn't do that. Right. You really did. Yeah, I mean, that was wrong back then. But, right. 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 But weak. now yeah. I think there's so many things, you know, what you all do is, you know, just talking to people and telling children it's okay. Cause you know, children can blame themselves a lot too. And I just didn't want my kids to, to feel that pain. Well, and, uh, yeah, they see yeah. a whole lot more than we think they, they see or feel. And I had a question about that. I was actually going to ask you, uh, and then you mentioned it. How much do you think your Catholic religion, you know, kept you in this relationship out of obligation and duty to make things right? I think that had a lot to do with it, Angie. Yeah. I think I was raised that way. Um, I'm 62 right now. So, you know, he's been um, gone, I think, 14 years. Um, I think it, it's that guilt. Mm -hmm. um, it's the, the pressure you feel. The pressure I felt maybe from my family, my parents. Yeah. His parents, obviously. Um, you feel a lot of pressure. And maybe if it was now, I would have done something different and just said no. I think, although I did feel like there were a few times I tried to walk away, I have to say I did. And it just, it hurt too much. And I said, I can't do this to my children. And again, it could have been something in my mind from that uh, Catholic upbringing 
that you have a lot of Catholic guilt, you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously I had a father who, you know, he did the same thing. So you, you probably think it's just, just okay, just stay. It's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. Um, and I didn't want to walk away because I loved him. Of course. Um, and that's right. And that's hard because, you know, they always say that is the toughest part is walking away. Like if I would have walked away from him, um, I remember this was something, and I was just telling a friend about this because they asked, did, did ever become physical? And I never told my children this, by the way, um, that one night I was talking with them and I was trying to make sense. And I was like, don't you understand? Like, what don't you understand? Like, I just, I just went off because I, I had a meltdown. Yeah. Because I was trying to fix it right there at that moment. Mm-hmm. And I literally, I threw myself against the wall, almost cracked my skull. And I, I just, that's how bad it gets. Yeah, it drives that you crazy. Is, yes, it was like, you don't freaking understand. Look at me, look at me. And he just kind of had this look on his face and I kind of went, oh, I literally against a cement wall in my house. Wow. And he kind of just stood there, didn't really get much of a reaction to be honest. Well, I freaking almost killed myself. Wow. Um, trying to make him understand, I guess. But was that not the saddest thing that I didn't get a reaction? I mean, do you see that a lot in, in what you talk to well, people about? Well, I think about? you were dealing with somebody that was so numbed out, so, you know, anesthesia, ana- <laughs> you know, like they're under anesthesia. Uh, well, he was like so saying. drunk yes. that I don't know how much he was actually even there to give you any kind of reaction. Don't they also say, because one of the things I thought that happened was, I felt like he, a part of his mind, like, I don't know what that thing is called in their mind where alcohol starts affecting their brain. Wet brain. Yeah, where I just felt like that's the little things I noticed. And I kept saying things to my mom because my mom was a nurse. She's like, I don't think you understand. He is not doing well. He, this is, if this is starting to affect his brain like it is, because he would forget things or say things or say things that didn't make sense. And I'm like, I just thought, like you said, he was drunk or whatever, but he wasn't. It was he'd lost a part of his mind. Yeah, we we see that. Um, it's pretty common for older alcoholics. You know, their motor functions slow, their memory slows. They're just a little slower. And sometimes, even after getting sober, it's not like it immediately fixes it. Sometimes it's almost permanent damage, which yeah. is hard for them yeah. to deal with on you know an ego type basis for sure. Like, why quit if I've already done this? How could I, you know, like. 70 days of trying to get sober and mentally it does not come back then that just becomes a huge uh loss to them like i can't even get sober to fix this type of deal not saying that that was the case but we've we've seen that happen as well but we've also seen people come in in walkers and do crossfit by the end of the program and we've just seen so much volume of people that you you see both sides of the coin all the time and it's like the best part of the job is that people save their lives and the worst part of the job is that people don't and it's just this it's both there all the time yeah yeah Yeah. and it's just how determined are they how how much do they want it you know are they willing to overcome these things or are they like it's not worth it (laughs) how what is the youngest person that you've seen with addiction I, I, I've been around for a long time. And back when I first started, we actually took juveniles into the program. And so 
Um, we actually have one of our guys. He's been on staff with me ever since then, but he came in at uh, 15. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, that's that's just the er youngest we took him. It starts way earlier. I started drinking and using at 11. So, uh, yes, it, it can start very young, unfortunately, and it can well, go until very old as well. We've that's had uh, some I, mid 70 year olds in uh, even last year in the mid mid COVID. We had some older gentlemen and uh, yeah, it was like, wow. OK, a lady good. who's 78. Yeah. Like, go, wow. yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I often wonder if there's any links uh, between that and like an Alzheimer's or, you know, again, because you have this effect uh, of your brain and especially if you've drank for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if they've ever linked this stuff, but I really feel and as I said, I'm just I want to keep reading and, and feeling good that the hope for the future, there are more things that you could do. And the power of like you're doing, talking to people and writing it down, the power of the pen, they say, you know, just understanding all this stuff is, is so powerful that I got to believe the future looks a lot brighter for people with addiction right now. Yeah, it is. It really is. I think uh, even in my like shorter tenure of being in the field, uh, I'm 29. I got sober at 21. And wow. so I've been working as a counselor for the last seven years. And even in those seven years, I've seen a big shift in as far as resources, as far as communities and different groups popping up and different ways to go about things and brain scans and just there's so wow. many different variations, which is awesome because for the longest time, it was just Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, like right. when you were kind of referencing maybe 20 years ago or with your father, yes. therapy wasn't cool. There was nothing cool about meditation. There was nothing cool about therapy. It was sit oh, down and shut up and just put one foot in front of the other and we'll all get through this if we just don't talk about it. <laughs> wow, and that's been wow, proven that's... to be so ineffective. Right. So for me, it's been beautiful to see even in the seven years from when I first got sober to now, there's so much to offer. And at the end of the day, it's still the person suffering's choice. And I kind of look at it as if someone was overweight. There's so many options to lose weight or to work out or to get healthy. Yes. And, right. and people do and people don't. And right. what gets in the way is still kind of a big question mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. and it's different and that, for everybody. There's literally yeah. no one size fits all. And everybody has their own demons is how motivated are they to fix it or overcome it but if you look at it and this is this is what it taught me too is life is so short you know i, I love that i always um gave my kids that book the dash i don't know if you've ever heard it because it talks about what do you do between the time you were born and die it's that dash that you see when you're in the cemetery right yeah. and it is such it is such a short time it is such a short time and I just, that is what is so like, it's like branded right now on me because it is short. Like every day I feel such urgency and I felt that for a long time now because wow. you just don't know. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And I think when you see that, you know, they say, how do you live that dash? Because that time is so short. I don't think people understand that. And that's what I told my kids from a very young age. You saw it, you saw it, that dash is, the shortest, you know, it goes quick, right? Yeah. You know, when you hit your 40s, 50s, 60s, and I just think that um, it's 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 such a short time. It's it's just so tragic that people don't understand that. Yeah, 
it, it, it is difficult. It's especially when you're young too. It's difficult. You think you just have all this time. When I was yeah. 20, and you think you're invincible. Yeah, exactly. I was exactly. 20 using drugs. I had all this time. I had all the time in the world to turn it all around and live a great life. And now I'm almost 30 and I'm like, dude, this is, I'm 30 almost. This is quick. This is going very fast. And you're a baby, my friend. You're a I baby. See, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> but I'm if you kidding. can use the, sorry, if you fast. can use the time to, to realize you don't have a lot of it, you can then yes. enjoy all of it. Yes. And make the most of it. You're right. You're right. And 30s, 30s, that's a pretty eye-opening. My son's 29. 30 is a big, uh, a big one. It just seems like a lot of people that age, they talk about 50, but I think 30, especially nowadays, is a big eye-opener. Yeah. Because like you said, it seems to happen so fast now. Yeah, you're like certified an adult. Like, I don't get to be 20, like eight or 27. (laughs) Like, I'm I'm an adult. Like, I need to like not make mistakes anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah, and you evaluate your life. Like, where should I be by this milestone? Where did mm-hmm. I think I should right. be? Where is everybody else at this age? It definitely makes you yeah. evaluate where you're at. And they're all like that, you know, 30, 40, 50. They all, they all end up being that way in some way or another. Yeah. Milestones, milestones. I think another cool side of the story, Michelle, that you brought up, and I love because I can kind of relate to it as well, is – how your children took the experience because obviously that isn't always the case, right? Some people, their father's an alcoholic, so they become an alcoholic and and vice versa. So I love, I love to hear that it was, you know, as painful as it probably was for them and as difficult as it probably was, it was very much empowering too, as well to, to take that dash importantly and to become who they want and, you know, to treat their body as it's like their temple type of thing. And, my father was an alcoholic and he was always saying, if you ever pour alcohol in my drink, I'll kill you guys. If you ever do drugs or alcohol, it will kill you. It's the devil, blah, blah, blah. It All it made me want to do was try it. All exactly. Because you're curious. Yeah, it just made me so curious. Like everybody I know, dad, says that you're wrong and alcohol and weed and cocaine and all this stuff is great. <laughs> And there's way more of them than there is you. <laughs> and so and you're a rebellious teenager and a rebellious teenager. <laughs> so it's strange to see how, you know, how children or just how people can perceive the, the same situation completely differently. Yes. And, and, and what they do with it. They either go down that addict alcoholic path or they like turn into overachievers to never be that way. We see it. it and it pretty is. It's pretty much very divisive. There's very little like in the middle. It mm-hmm. usually goes very extreme in either direction. Well, I think I also think it would be great um, down the road for my son to talk to you guys because yeah. you're, you're going to hear from another perspective. OK, and, and I think he would. I, of course, I could never force him to do that. But right, right, right. I think you're going to hear from another perspective because he did, like you said, what made him turn it the other way? Because it's it's a 50-50 shot, let's face it. Of course, when you're yeah. When you grow up in that environment, just like it, it was with me, um, what made him um, and become, again, what deep down, that inspiration, that empowerment, like you said, made him do that. And I think it'd be great for him to talk to, to kids maybe who go through the same thing because you always feel like you're so alone. I'm sure he felt that way. Yeah, I guarantee um, it. And his sister was too little to understand, so he really... 
he had me, and again, I was putting on the show that I didn't want them to worry, blah, blah, blah. So who else did he have? He didn't really have anybody. But the other thing I did that I think is really, really good is find them role models. Yes. I thought after this happened, because if, if your kids don't have a role model um, to look up to, and again, I know I was a great role model because I got up early, went to work, and they saw that and that worth that work ethic. But I tried to find them male role models mm-hmm. in my life that could really affect. Like my father had a great effect on them. My friends, one of my best friends, who Charlie's still very good friends with. Um, you know, you need role models because what happens? I, I think if you don't, you just kind of drift away. Yeah. And it's real easy just to drift. But if you don't have that male role model in your life. Um, just something kept telling me you had to you had to have that. And I think that that was a big help too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it's hard to know what you don't know. So if your son didn't know how to do these things as he's becoming a man himself, it's either going to fall on his lap in the right way or the wrong way. So it was good to be proactive and say, "Hey, this is where we're looking at. We want to be over here." You know, and I think the beautiful thing, too, is what you said earlier, where your kids were your heroes. I guarantee you, if we got your son on here, he'd say the same thing about you, you know, showing him yeah, strength thank and, you. and yeah, all of that. He would. He, I think as he got older, he saw really what it did, because to this day, I, I would never say a bad word about their father, because I can't stand those people who they lose someone to addiction and all they do is say bad things about them. Yeah. They're not, they're no longer there. That is the worst thing you could do. And I have never done that. And I see friends of mine, women do it. And I said, please don't do that. Yeah. I don't care if it's divorce addiction, because what you're doing now, they're going to grow up with a lot of resentment, your kids, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's just not right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's, I, I I know what you're talking about. I've I've seen that as well. Uh, there was a big loss in in my life earlier this year, and I, I saw both sides of it. And it was kind of like, at some point, what's done is done. Why create more negativity? Why create more right. resentments? Like, there's nothing to solve. Let's just honor. Let's honor the right. good, and, and right. try to make this better for the people that are here still. You know, right. instead of dragging it out. Because they're not a bad person, right? They're not a bad person. Yeah. They're, they still have a beautiful soul and they're a great person. But I just don't like how the world turns it around to be like they're a bad person. Right. I find that so heartbreaking with with all these addictions that that person just, like you were saying earlier, Angie, they're just bad. It's just so, oh my God. That to me is the crux of a lot of it. That to me, you know, again, I wish... I would I would tell more people that and I will tell more people that and I do tell more people that because um, it's exhausting. I was heartbroken. Um, I was depressed for a long time. Um, I could have self-destruct at any moment. Yeah, that was how bad it was after all this. But you just got to keep going and like what you do just sitting here talking about it makes me feel good like i i i did okay you did i did okay yeah you did considering the shit that was thrown at me you did really good and and i think that's a key and i mean there's such a fine line of like honoring them and understanding them but also not making it 
okay to be like that either. And so, you know, and I think you masterfully walked that line as well, because, you know, you don't want to glorify it like, oh, they were such a great person. They just had a problem. But at the same time, you don't want to villainize them either. And so I think you've done a really good job with that. Can't be easy. No, it's not easy. What would you say, like, the next couple years after he passed? Like, what was, I know you kind of hit on, maybe you said you went and saw someone or you saw you were at groups like what was the most helpful for you i think you kind of mentioned just talking being open about it but if there's yeah. you know anyone listening that's going through something yeah. similar like what was the most helpful for you in, in that growth or moving forward part don't be afraid to go get help mm -hmm. yeah because i was almost embarrassed mm -hmm. so i think if you could change that stigma like we talked about mm -hmm. earlier that it's okay like i was embarrassed walking into an al-anon meeting yeah oh my god like if any if i would have known anybody in that meeting i probably would have sunk in my chair and ran out the back door of course um make it okay make it okay these the conversation that we're having is such a beautiful conversation and it's okay but if you tell more people it's okay to talk, to get it out, to cry, to feel the pain, because you keep all that inside, man, that is, oh my God, like I said, I could have self-destructed. I could have had a heart attack. Yeah. I could have, um, I could have done something to really hurt myself. I could have done things and, and don't think I didn't think that. And I, I'm telling you, but don't think I didn't think that Yeah. at one point, Absolutely. because you're done, you're done with it. You were done with all this and but talking is what it is truly the key and again back when i was younger we didn't have it i wish we did it would have probably helped my sisters and i um and my brother but what what you're doing is so important um just healing people and tell them it's okay listening listening not, yeah not laughing not laughing at them not making them feel embarrassed you know because you know i'm a career person right i'm out in the working world and here's the weird thing. After this all happened, no one really at Xerox knew that Chuck was an addict. And I think that is so interesting. That's how well that he hit it, wow. that I hit it. No one would ever know. They, they didn't know the story. I mean, I had a few close friends, obviously, but I think that's so interesting how people go to such lengths to hide it. Because mm -hmm. I certainly did, and he certainly did. Um, and uh, it's... You just got to tell people it's okay. It's the talking. It's it's like the release. It's like your heart is okay after that. That very first meeting I went to, I didn't care for the AA. It's just my personal opinion. But talking to people like you who, who are, excuse me, truly listening, who understand the kind of person I am and mm -hmm. I want to help. I'm a kind person. I care. I love. And it's okay. And you're still a great person. If, if someone doesn't tell you that, you just beat the crap out of yourself. I beat the crap out of myself for so many years. Yeah. And I think my mother did too. My mother beat the crap out of herself. Of course, she watching carried my that dad Catholic guilt as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I, I think, and we hear this from families a lot, like, I wish I could do your program. And it's because you're just able to dedicate working on yourself. Like I think every one of us human beings, whether it's addiction or trauma or different things that have occurred in our life, We've endured a lot, and I think it's important to to do measures to be positive over that. It's like a lifelong journey. I mean, we still 
both do things to constantly improve ourselves and our conditions because we're always confronted with new situations and new scenarios. And I just think it's a lifelong process that everybody should find somebody they could talk to, find a group that they can be comfortable in, find some sort of either therapy or self-help that sinks to their soul, mm-hmm. whether it's hard discipline or it's CrossFit or just something where you're continually moving forward so that you're not sliding mm-hmm. backwards in whatever that is. Yeah, and you mentioned meditating too. I started doing that. Uh, it's funny you mentioned. I just started doing that maybe a year ago. Oh, I started. Awesome. I took yoga because I never thought. I never thought I'd like yoga. I always you know, I went to those classes where the teacher, like, if you weren't doing a split on the floor, you were a loser. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm like, I'm not going to yoga. I feel like a jerk. Yeah, but uh, I found this girl that is so cool, and she just taught me how to meditate and be zen. And I think again, when you're dealing with that situation, I wish I would have had that back then. Because meditating would have helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly having faith did help me, I have to say, because I've said a lot of prayers. But I think the meditating would have given me more reflection and just it would have took away a lot of the stress. Oh, and, yeah. And, you know, back then, because I remember years ago when Goldie Hawn, who I love, she was meditating, God, for so many years. And I always thought she was, you almost think, oh, God, they're way out there because they meditate. Oh, my God. It is the best thing for your heart and your soul. And I think with addiction, that's, that would have really helped me too. Cause now I know, but back then no one said that. And, you know, hopefully if you talk to people about meditating, they'll understand that it's such a beautiful thing. Cause now that I'm doing it, I'm getting a lot more of my friends to do it. And they're like, this is crazy. How, how, you know, I do it for 10 minutes in the morning before my feet hit the floor changes my whole day, yeah. changes my outlook. Um, I'm very positive, but it just, it gets me in the right frame. Yeah. And I think that that's important. Well, and that's why we start working on it with our clients day one when they enter the program is, you know, so that's that awesome. they can develop a very good habit of meditation because it's a learned practice. It doesn't come naturally for me. I struggled with it. Um, my mind, I couldn't shut things off. So we try to work on it with them. And then the families see it working for them and they're like, oh, my gosh, if it can help you know, my kid, my loved one, the attic, what could it do for me? And so I think, you know, the yeah. more we can keep doing that, setting in a good example, talking about it, the more the world will start opening up to it. And I think like we've talked about numerous times, we're in such a different times where people are very open to that. They're very into it. Yeah. There are so, so many so great, options right? about it. Yeah, uh, we can hit whoever it is in whatever way by whatever kind of person indicates to them. And so I think we're in a very fortunate time right now. And we need it. I mean, over if you look back over the years now, all of us need it, I think, every day. Oh, yeah. Just to, oh, yeah. Just to reflect in a good way, because um, all our lives have changed so drastically. And I, I don't know, but through the through these last few years, when people are struggling, is, is are the cases of addiction even higher, I would believe? Yeah, we saw more overdoses last year than we've ever seen, as well as more suicide. Obviously, it had I would, to do a lot with that. the pandemic and also just has to do with very hard drugs that are out there right now with fentanyl and things yeah. like that. That is so scary. Yeah. yeah. But it's such a, you must feel like healers and that must be such a good feeling because healers are really important in your life and we all need it. And just, you got it. More people have to do it, you know, because yes. you would yes. ask about uh, what was it? It was it was the healing. It was talking to people like you. That is really the only way you survive this um, and come out in a good frame of mind and, and live the rest of your life. Not a bitter person, but you can move forward. Some people get bitter. That's the other extreme that I see, too. These people are just like, don't be like that. 
talk it out. Just come on. It's no one's perfect. Talk it out. Listen. Go talk to someone that could really help you. For sure. Um, I mean, I feel like hanging on to those lower emotions, resentment, bitterness, they create havoc in our body. You know, it's it's not a healthy uh, way to live to hang on to those things. So for sure, go talk about it and find an outlet. Do not hang on to that. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah. Not at all. Yeah, I kind of am under the, you know, the idea that everybody needs help. And the sooner we could all realize that, and the sooner we can mm -hmm. all realize that we're all here to help each other in the first place, right. like right. everyone's career or job or purpose in some degree is to help somebody else. Like that's what jobs right. are. We are helping other people do other things. Right. And right. so we all kind of understand that we all need help, but we don't really understand that we all need help and that we're all here for each other. Right. And so I wish people could just understand that a little a little deeper and, it, and it's difficult and there's times i don't want and not help. be afraid of it and put their pride aside and yeah. be vulnerable be willing points. to be vulnerable that's a big you have one. to be vulnerable and there's just a lot of people in this world that won't be that way yeah they're just afraid and again maybe embarrassed um but i agree with you everybody does it just in everyday life now the yeah. world's changed so much in the last 10 years we need it with everything in our life um i just uh yeah, I, the whole thing about kindness is important too. Yeah, I think is more people were kind because again, that's a form of healing and helping and making people feel better. And that's that's another thing that I focus a lot on, kindness. Yeah. Um, well, that shows you that the world is okay. The world is a safe place. And when you go through something that you went through, the world does not feel okay. The world does not feel safe or kind or nice or polite. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just seeing the other side of the coin being reminded that there's good out there and there's hope out there and all that stuff allows us to to keep going you know like the stories of people getting through things and stories like this you know i'm sure there's someone mm -hmm. listening or well they will be listening right now it's just us listening <laughs> but someone will be yeah someone will be listening going through a difficult yeah. time and just hearing somebody else be vulnerable and say hey I went through something very difficult. It was super hard. I talked to somebody. Eventually, things uh -huh. started to get better. That goes yeah. that goes so far for someone. Yeah. yeah. And we need more of that. I You're right. So. Yeah. Sharing that story, being willing to be vulnerable, if it just helps one more person, that's worth it. Right. I mean, it's the whole reason we started this podcast is – you know, during the pandemic, how can we reach or help more people? And a lot of that was ourselves learning to be vulnerable. It was the first time I ever even started telling my story, which was, you know, what, a long time ago. Yeah. But it's it's being willing to do that. And then that humanizes it and it makes it safe and comfortable for more people to have those conversations or get that help they need or want. Yeah, and I think it's, um, you know, and I'm a good example, you know, a woman who's aging, has a career all that again those women tend not to want to do any of this um and i think i'm a great example that you should and i i preach it all the time and uh, that's that's really the way that you'll survive like you said whatever you're going through there's you know a lot of types of addictions yeah well i really appreciate you sharing your story michelle that was i know i i know it wasn't easy and i nope. think the result it can create is is awesome and amazing and i'm i'm so glad that you were able to come out on the other side and and just be making that dash super important for you and your children yes 
Well, I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for everything you do, okay? Yeah, can you tell us what you're doing now? Uh, I know you're a career woman. What does that look like? What are you doing these days? Sure, I work for Celebrity Cruises. I'm a director of market sales. Nice. And um, I'm out on the road. I travel a lot. I've been with the company almost 30 years, so. So is it Celebrity Cruises, is that the title? Or is it literally a cruise with celebrities? Or is it both? It's uh, Celebrity Cruises is part of Royal Caribbean Cruises Limited. Royal Caribbean Group, yeah. Gotcha. So is yeah. it all celebrities or it's just the name? It's just it's just the name. It's just the name. So I was about to have way more questions if it was like <laughs> every week I'm sailing the Bahamas with all these celebrities. <laughs> no, it's great. It's it's wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We really appreciate you coming on, sharing your story, willing to be vulnerable, all in the name of trying to help others who might be in a similar situation. We really appreciate you doing that. Thank you for everything you do, okay? And I'm always here to talk. So are we. And if your son ever wants to come on, we are more than happy to do that. Even if it's in private. Even if it's in private. Whatever we could do to be of service or be helpful, that's what we're here for. Great. Well, thanks for everything you do as well. Of course, Michelle. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. You will. Bye. All right, guys, that's our show for today. We hope you found some value from listening. And if you did, please share with someone you know or love. You can find us on social media. We are at Elevate Addiction Services. And if you or a loved one are struggling with addiction, please call our toll-free, confidential 24-hour helpline at 833-33-SOBER or visit our website at elevaterehab.org.